Welcome to the Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP, 106.5 FM, Louisville. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 156. Today's topic is DSA's Green New Deal, Part 10. Because we've been talking about the DSA's Green New Deal in nine previous episodes... And it's well worthwhile because the Green New Deal, there are different organizations uh, that have published different documents at different times for different purposes. These include the DSA, these include the Congressional, uh, the House of Representatives, led by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Also, the Green Party has a version of the Green New Deal. And what the Green New Deal is, among other things, is a conversation It's also a platform for transformation. We need our society to be transformed. What we have right now might be called the old raw deal. So we want to take the old raw deal and transform our society so that we have a green new deal. By the old raw deal, I mean the political and economic institutions that provide profit and benefit for a tiny minority of privileged elites, but leave everyone else to struggle. Nobody wants that, and even the privileged elites, many of them will be relieved when we get a Green New Deal, but many of them, most of them at the very top, are too short-sighted and unimaginative to think that there can be anything better than the system that made them financially successful. So we'll be talking about the Green New Deal in a few minutes, but first here's what the Climate Report is all about. So climate change and its detrimental effects, even its catastrophic effects, are not in the vague and unspecified future. We have already experienced catastrophic effects of the Green New Deal. I'm sorry, we've already experienced catastrophic effects of climate change. And I want to issue this challenge to anyone who thinks that either climate change is not real or that it is not catastrophic or that it is not urgent. Such people I will refer to as defenders of business as usual. I'm looking for a defender of business as usual who is truly concerned about the environment, truly concerned about wildlife, truly concerned about the negative health impacts of fossil fuel extraction or fossil fuel burning or fossil fuel transport. Because I don't think there are any. Furthermore, I don't think there are any climate change deniers who know or care about the fact that the oceans are now a great deal warmer and more acidic than they were before, all of which is having catastrophic effects on the marine life of the ocean, the ecosystems of the ocean, and the ocean covers 70% of our planet, and currently the plant life in the ocean provides 50% of our oxygen through photosynthesis, performed by marine plant life. So if by continuing to wreak havoc on our oceans through warming temperatures, through 
acidification because of CO2 and also because of plastic pollution. Remember that plastic is a petroleum product. So by continuing to let these processes continue, we are jeopardizing the source of half of our oxygen. I'm looking for a climate change denier or skeptic who knows or cares about these phenomena. And I'm looking for a climate change denier or a skeptic or a defender of business as usual that has a plan for solving these problems. I can assure you Mitch McConnell does not have a plan for solving these problems. I can assure you that Donald Trump and Mike Pence do not have a plan for solving these problems. I can assure you that none of the mainstream Democrats, such as Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer or Dianne Feinstein, have a plan for solving these problems. Today we need leadership. We need real leadership. We need leadership that has a plan. If a leader does not have a plan, then he or she is not a leader. Even Louisville's congressman, John Yarmouth, seems to be opposed to the Green New Deal. Anything he has said about the Green New Deal is decidedly lackadaisical, uncommitted, and even opposed. He says he doesn't think it can be justified from a budgetary standpoint. And he's the chairman of the Budget Committee. We need leaders who are willing to lead. We need leaders who have a plan. Don't pretend to be concerned about the well-being or the future of your constituency if you don't have a plan. It matters little whether John Yarmouth or Dianne Feinstein or Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer believe in climate change if they don't have a plan. The Green New Deal is that plan. We can argue about the details, but most people who are objective and rational and have a knowledge of the facts are going to be behind the Green New Deal, at least in its major principles. But the problem is the Green New Deal poses a threat to a number of industries that are currently very profitable. In fact, there is hardly an industry in the Fortune 500 whose profits will not be seriously compromised by the implementation of a Green New Deal. Keep in mind, now this is why we're talking about a radical transformation. This is why the Green New Deal is a radical transformation. Assuming for the sake of discussion that the Fortune 500 constitutes two-thirds of our economy, assuming for the sake of discussion that the Fortune 500, in other words, the 500 biggest companies, assuming for the sake of discussion that they control two-thirds of our economy, Anything that poses a threat to the profits of the Fortune 500 is a radical transformation. The Green New Deal poses a threat to the profits of Wall Street. The Green New Deal poses a threat to the profits of agribusiness. 
The Green New Deal poses a threat to the profits of the big banks and the big insurance companies, including the health insurance companies. The Green New Deal poses a threat to the profits of the war manufacturers, the, the, the defense manufacturers, the, the weapons manufacturers, the war profiteers. The Green New Deal poses a threat to companies that deal in fossil fuels, not least of all, fracking. The Green New Deal poses a threat to the profits of multinational restaurant companies and multinational hotel corporations and multinational retail companies of all kinds, not least of all big box electronic stores and big box hardware stores. So it shouldn't be a surprise if they uh, oppose it with all they've got. Furthermore, the Green New Deal poses a threat to the profits of the big media companies. But I have just named a series of industries that are fundamentally parasitic. We're talking about industries and corporations that are fundamentally parasitic. They fundamentally are harmful to our health, our safety, and our way of life. But that doesn't bother, you know, so to see them go away doesn't bother me, and it shouldn't bother you, because these rapacious multinational corporations will be replaced by thriving, local, sustainable economies. Sustainable economies, sustainable businesses, agribusiness needs to be replaced by sustainable, local agriculture. War profiteers need to frickin' go away and not do anything. The big health insurance companies need to be replaced with Medicare for all. Auto manufacturers need to be replaced with manufacturers of solar panels, wind turbines, high-speed electric trains, and all of the parts that are needed to construct a state-of-the-art electrical grid that is needed to optimize our solar and wind power generation systems. Now, what I've just named, the solar, the wind, the mass transit, the electrical grid, these are opportunities to create whole new industries and lots and lots of jobs. Because the most dynamic industries are those that benefit from government-funded technological research. Private enterprise has been responsible for virtually none of the research that has resulted in computer technology, medical technology. Furthermore, we have a lot of government research that produces technologies that we do not need, such as the technologies that lead to more powerful weapons. We do not need that. So we need to redirect our technological funding from industries that we do not need and put it into industries that we do need. So I'm not concerned with a radical transformation of our economy, and you shouldn't be either. And you and I should not be concerned with the demise of these huge corporations that are fundamentally parasitic. 
Let me give you another example. We have big banks. Big banks. So they take low interest loans from the government, sometimes zero interest loans, and they put that money into marketing so that they can sell people credit cards with high interest rates. They also use their lobbying power to make sure we keep paying for higher education with student loans, government-guaranteed student loans that the big banks profit from. So I've just described a couple of parasitic activities on the part of big banks. Imagine instead if we have publicly owned banks. North Dakota has one. Los Angeles recently tried to put one in but was voted down because these institutions, these publicly owned banks, are a threat to the for-profit banks. But what if publicly owned banks could provide the services that are needed without all the profiteering? We don't need these big banks. We don't need the banks that, that crashed our economy in 2008 and they had funded the Obama campaign so heavily and funded the campaigns of our Congress so heavily that Congress and the Obama administration bailed out the banks but did not provide any relief for homeowners whose homes went down in value or the people who lost their jobs. We could go on and on, but these big companies want us to believe that they are the backbone of the American economy. Nothing but could be further from the truth. They are the broken back of the American economy. We need to redirect the same resources to help Main Street, not Wall Street. So in this and many other respects, we need to rethink everything. We need to re-examine our priorities. We need to redirect our resources. And to make that happen, we need to practice activism. The three pillars of activism are to educate, organize, and agitate. We educate ourselves and one another. We organize, and then we agitate. And when we agitate, we don't agitate alone. We do so in conjunction with many other people and organizations so that our voice will be heard. And that's what the Climate Report is all about. This program is part of WFMP's Public Affairs Educational Programming. The views expressed are those of the speaker and not the station. And to the extent that I mention any people or organizations in this program, I am giving my own opinion and not theirs. In this program, I'm talking about DSA's Green New Deal. I'm speaking for myself and not for DSA. If you have any comments or questions or feedback, please email info at theclimatereport.net. And if you enjoy this content, I invite you to go to theclimatereport.net to find more episodes and playlists and also my blog. That's theclimatereport.net. So in this series, we're going through the Green New Deal of the DSA, and we're doing so in sequence. We are currently on Principle 3 of the seven principles in DSA's Green New Deal. So Principle 3 is divided into 
items A through J. And last time we were on item E, which said we're going to build decarbonized infrastructure in critical sectors like renewable energy, regenerative agriculture, soil and ecosystem restoration, environmental impact mitigation, and climate adaptation. So one point I made there is that we should not be afraid of of public sector jobs. We should embrace the government creating public sector jobs. Our country for time immemorial has been enthralled by an extreme version of what's called free market economics. I call free market economics the free market fairy tale. It's kind of like Santa Claus. You believe in it for a while and then you get to the point where you don't. And one thing the free market fairy tale says is that government is inept and government is inefficient and that business is efficient. But if you look at that strictly from an environmental standpoint, business is very efficient at doing what it does, which is to make profits irrespective of the impact on society. Some, business are, some businesses are very efficient at creating water pollution. Some businesses are very efficient at adversely impacting our climate. Some businesses are very efficient at shifting the cost, shifting the health impacts onto the public without paying the price of those health impacts. By contrast, teachers are among the most dedicated work and productive workers you can think of, but their productivity is not measured in terms of profit. So let's dispense with this notion that government should be minimized, or that business is inherently efficient, or that government is inherently inefficient. Much of the technology that we have is a result of government-funded research, and we need more research in hundreds, if not thousands, of areas, not least of all the items that are mentioned here, renewable energy, regenerative agriculture, soil and ecosystem restoration, environmental impact mitigation, and climate adaptation. Now, this Green New Deal says we're going to do this while also expanding support for low-carbon care sectors like health care, education, which I just mentioned, health care, education, and domestic work. So let's take health care. So currently the United States spends twice as much per capita as a percentage of GDP, but twice as much per capita on health care as other industrialized countries because all other industrialized countries have single-payer health care, government-funded health care, socialized health care. You can only imagine that if we, and, and that's for different reasons, but it, it's, uh, among other reasons, it's because we're paying too much money to for-profit health insurance companies, and we're paying too much money to pharmaceutical companies that charge exorbitant prices for drugs that they have a monopoly on. It's a major racket. So imagine if we took some of those funds and instead 
paid health care workers. So there's a lot that can be done with health care if we start to think of it as a public benefit. If we start to think of health as a, an investment. Health is an investment in our society, in our culture, in our economy. Plus, health care is fundamentally a low-carbon industry. So some of these people that are going to be losing jobs, working for fossil fuel industries, and not just on the rig or in the mine, but in the corporate office. Plus, all of a sudden, people that work, a lot of people that work at, at for-profit health insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies, a lot of such people are going to be out of work. Now, we want to provide a just transition, especially for those who might fall below the median income. And we want to provide government-guaranteed jobs, and we want to provide a basic a universal basic income, but we also want to provide job opportunities, and many of those job opportunities can come in the form of health care, education, and domestic work. We will have resources to dedicate to these activities if we remember that, for one thing, a lot of people are ready, willing, and eager to do this work. And also, if we remember that health care and education and domestic work are investments in the health and education of our people. Why have we come so far from the idea that health and education are an investment that pays off? Now, I would like to add a fourth category So the DSA's Green New Deal has three categories of workers and types of work for which we will expand support. Healthcare, education, and domestic work are low-carbon care sectors for which we can expand support. A fourth category is the arts. So in a highly commercialized economy, We have been brainwashed into thinking that the arts are a luxury. I would argue that the arts are a necessity. We have K-12 education that is driven by high-stakes testing. Combine that with a lack of adequate funding, and you have schools that continue to cut programs related to visual arts, and performing arts like music and theater. But the arts are an investment in the development of young people. I would also add that the arts are an investment in the health and well-being and vitality of a community. The arts should be funded by government because private business will never fund the arts in any way that is remotely egalitarian. Now, there is precedent for this. There was a time earlier in American history when the arts received funding. In the original New Deal, in the Great Depression, there was funding for community theaters. 
and some, to some extent for commercial theaters. Now Orson Welles became a famous American actor and he got his start as an actor and a director on Broadway in plays that were funded by the government. So funding for the arts can include funding for community theaters. Funding for the arts can include funding for things like folk music. But what this funding can represent is not only support for professional performers, but also participation for people in the community. So imagine if there is a community theater, and the idea is that it's not professional actors, it is for amateur actors, people in the community who want to spend their time performing and directing and producing local plays for the community. Now, who ain't going to like that? I'll tell you who ain't going to like that, and that is Hollywood. Big, mu- big um, movie companies and big music companies aren't going to lie. I mean, they might not say it publicly, but community-based performing arts pose a threat to, corporate, to the corporate version of theater and the corporate version of music. It's great for the community. It's great for the development of people. It's great for the health of actual people, but it's going to cut into the profits of the big music corporations and the big movie corporations. And you can always count on corporate America to oppose things that cut into their profits. But in a rational society that is dedicated to the health and the well-being of its people, Funding for the arts will be part of that so that we don't have to worship at the altar of commercially produced art. Because art should not be defined by that which is the most profitable. Define art however you want, but don't let commercial businesses define what art is or is not. So I've got another couple of minutes to go. Let me leave you with something to think about. So a prevailing theme here is whether business will be allowed to completely control everything. And what we have now is a society where business and profits are allowed to completely control everything. Now there's a couple of other items that I don't really have time to get to here, but they're along the same lines. One is workers give, give workers democratic control over the use of technical, technological innovation and automation at work. Another is promote worker-owned and worker-controlled cooperatives and enterprises at all levels of the economy. Another is to empower workers with stronger labor protections and rights to collectively organize. Another is to reduce the work week and guarantee substantial paid parental leave and vacation time for all workers. So we'll talk about each of these next time and what they mean and what are the implications of this kind of policy. But the prevailing theme is that these are things that are going to cut into corporate profits. And there are people who are going to think that you might as well burn the flag as to make any proposal 
that poses a threat to corporate profits because these big corporations have wrapped themselves in the American flag and they want you to think that they are the backbone of our economy. They are not the backbone of our economy. They are the broken back of our economy. They want you to think that everything, that all well-being is measured by their profits. They want you to think that when you cut into their profits, it's a national emergency. But what's a national emergency? It's when profiteers get to control everything for their own benefit. That's all the time we have. Thank you for joining me. Hope you'll come back next time. Have a great day.